This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for Tuesday, November 22nd. The weather forecast for today, a mixture of sun and cloud, the high plus two degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, minister provides details on education workers' contract offers. Number two, the Emergencies Act inquiry hears CSIS recommended the special powers. Number three, Canada's homicide rate rises. Number four, an ex-U.S. Army major brought down the Colorado shooting spree gunman. And number five, the Artemis mission, now on the dark side of the moon. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Happy Tuesday. Look at that. Tuesday, November 22nd. For history buffs, of course, this would be the anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But for so many people, that is such ancient history now. But still, I guess uh, to paraphrase, a day that will live in infamy. Uh, Amongst other stories this morning, one would certainly be that we're learning a few more details of the deal that was made with, uh, or actually it's not necessarily a deal, it's an offer, and the union says they're going to take it to its members. No indication yet of whether or not the members are happy about this. The suspicion is that they're not terribly happy about it, but they also realize that the, not necessarily that the fix is in, but that this is the best deal they're going to be offered, and given the gyrations that we went through with two days of striking, and uh, the blunderbuss law that the province brought in and then with, uh, withdrew, that effectively this is about as good as it gets. If we want to channel Jack Nicholson. Uh, the lowest paid, and actually one of the really interesting things here is if I'm understanding the deals I'm looking at it now, and these are based on figures that were provided by the education minister, but the union in the end agreed that would allow sort of two-tiered negotiation, which I think is the intelligent choice. Because here was always the problem. This particular agglomeration of workers brings together people who have very, very little in common with each other in terms of work responsibilities, in terms of whatever training or certification they might need for the work that they do. And the real problem always was that the lowest paid people were the ones who were effectively on the front lines as uh, people who worked as educational assistants. And... You know, often we've cited the example numerous times of like people have to actually wear hockey protective gear in order to work with kids who are more prone to violence. So the lowest paid QP school support staff are going to get an annual increase of about 4%. Actually, it's 4.2%. And so that'll, and you know, the minister is again quoting this average 39,000, which is not particularly helpful because that was an average that was created by blending together workers who worked full-time and workers who worked part-time. Um, but it does work out to about a dollar an hour. And that actually, if you want to get into the deep numbers, gets, uh, gets you to 16.7% over four years with compounding. So effectively, Whatever way you want to use to generate that average salary, the average salary of $39,000 would go to $43,899. And that's a fairly significant bump. I realize it's still, I don't know if it necessarily qualifies as a poverty wage, but in the city of Toronto, I, I don't know a lot of people who'd be able to make that work if they were only earning that. 
um, a good portion of the people at the lowest end in this particular collection of workers actually have multiple jobs. Some of them are gig workers. Some of them just go from uh, being an educational assistant who helps collect the kids in the morning and take them home in the afternoon, then they go off and do something else. Um, but anyway, that gives that gives you more a, a, a better impression of the deal that was made. And I don't think that this necessarily informs anything when it comes to the next round of negotiations because it's a, an entirely different class of workers once we start negotiating with uh, full-time teachers. Meanwhile, what an interesting day it was yesterday at the inquiry into the Emergencies Act. And I have been always fairly cautious in my approach to this because, you know, either you like the Emergencies Act or you don't like the Emergencies Act. My own position has always been, let's see what the full breadth of the investigation reveals because I'm not a fan of these kinds of special powers. Had I been around, I mean, I was, but I was like five. Had I been around during the, the uh, October crisis, I would have opposed the imposition of the uh, War Measures Act. So not a big fan of the Emergencies Act. But yesterday certainly was a day that bolstered the prime minister's position because the director of CSIS, David Vigneault, having previously said, or, or somebody from CSIS previously said, that the threshold for the imposition or invocation of the Emergencies Act had not been met, and yet yesterday, CSIS Director David Vigneault revealed that he actually did tell Justin Trudeau and company that he thought they should enact the Emergencies Act. Um, here's some audio. This is not necessarily David Vigneault. This, I think this is a lawyer who's going over some, uh, some documents. So, Nick, this would be clip number 22 from yesterday's hearing on the Emergencies Act. Mr. Vigneault stated that at the end of, Feb of the February 13th IRG meeting, Following the discussion of the Emergencies Act, he was asked by the Prime Minister to provide an opinion as to whether he supported the invocation of the Emergency Act. Mr. Vigneault explained that based on both his understanding that the Emergencies Act definition of threat to the security of Canada was broader than the CSIS Act, as well as based on his opinion of everything he had seen to that point, he advised the Prime Minister of his belief that it was indeed required to invoke the Act. And again, you remember saying that during the closed session? Yes. Okay, so it kind of moves the football significantly, if we want to use football metaphors, that now the prime minister is going to hit the stand probably on Friday. That's where he's scheduled uh, to hit the stand, and it's supposed to be the, um, the final testimony that will be offered. Uh, but the prime minister can just say, well, yeah, but the guy from CSIS told me I had to do it. So the, the top security expert in the country advised that, yes, the Emergencies Act was necessary. doesn't mean necessarily that the judge is going to rule in the government's favor or that you have to be fully on board, but that was some of the most dramatic testimony offered so far. And then you get to Bill Blair, and I actually didn't think that Bill Blair was going to do all that well on the stand yesterday. I can't necessarily attest to how well he did overall, but he didn't sit there with beads of sweat on his forehead offering up details about cabinet confusion. Uh, here's Bill Blair talking about the uh, border issues 
And that's one of the most important aspects of this whole thing. We obsess over the truckers' protest in Ottawa, which was more of a nuisance than anything else. But we had billions of dollars on the line when it comes to blocking border trade. And for Bill Blair, at the very least, blocking the border was very much a national security threat. Failure to resolve in Ottawa would have resulted just continue to like whack-a-mole chasing border blockades from one point of entry to another. There are 119 border points of entry, land border points of entry in this country, plus our airports, and all, all of them are vulnerable to this type of unlawful action. And in my opinion, that represented a serious threat to their, our national security and became a national emergency. So overall, if you were of an inclination to think that it was correct to invoke the Emergencies Act, yesterday's testimony was very supportive of that position. And in particular, not that much of a damaging day for Justin Trudeau and company. Time now to say good morning to John Moore, News Talk Radio 1010. See what's on his mind today. Good morning, John. Good morning, George. Welcome to the airwaves of News Talk 1010. It's nice to be here on CP24. You're welcome. Any old time, John. Uh, let's start here. A couple of Toronto cops <laughs> hurt after a collision in North York. Yeah, we don't know the nature of their injuries, but there was a two-car collision. Two police officers were injured. This happened around 9 p.m. last night at Keel and Finch West. As mentioned, it was a two-car collision. The person in the other vehicle uh, was cleared at the scene. So learning more about that story this morning, but uh, thoughts are certainly with two injured members of Toronto Police Service. And uh, on the crime front, last year saw the highest rate of gang-related murders in many, many years. Yeah, these are homicide statistics for the entire country. So in 2021, we had 788 homicides in Canada. That was up 3% from 2020. But of particular concern is the number of gang-related homicides. There were 184 of them. Uh, but, you know, you have to contrast this with murder statistics in other jurisdictions. For example, we're talking about um, 788 homicides nationwide in a population of 35 million in the United States, 10 times the the population, but an, an astronomical number of homicides, 22,900. As a matter of fact, the city of Chicago alone outstrips Canada's homicide wow. rate. Wow, that's just shocking. All right, back home now, uh, details of the QP deal have been disclosed, some of them. We're still waiting for the union to decide whether or not they're going to ratify the deal, but we're learning more about what is in it. And in particular, it looks like the union ultimately knuckled under and agreed that the lowest paid workers would receive a higher pay increase than other members of the same union. So when we're talking about the lowest paid members, we are looking at people who have an average wage of 39000 They're going to get a 4.2% annual increase, which is going to take them up to 43890 um, we'll see what happens when they get to ratification. My own prediction will be that everybody's just kind of weary and tired of the whole thing. And even though they may not be entirely happy with the deal that was struck, I'd imagine they may end up going for it nonetheless. Yeah, we'll just wait on that. And uh, the palace intrigue continues in Parliament Hill at the POEC, you know, the <laughs> Public Order Emergency Commission, a.k.a. the Emergencies Act inquiry. Uh, the director of CSIS apparently did recommend using this act. 
If you're a scorekeeper, then it was a pretty good day for Justin Trudeau and the federal government because the director of CSIS, as you said, George, was on the stand yesterday. And it was confirmed that even though there are these technical arguments over whether or not the uh, threat to public safety and threat to the economy rose to the level that CSIS, CSIS would normally acknowledge warranted the Emergencies Act, that when Justin Trudeau asked him if he was recommending it, he said yes. So uh, still a lot more testimony to be offered this week, more cabinet ministers are going to be on the stand and then Justin Trudeau arrives on Friday. Okay and finally not quite a giant leap for mankind but NASA is well near the moon again. Yeah, cue up the Pink Floyd because uh, NASA is back orbiting the moon and they went to the dark side Ooh. yesterday, as a matter of fact. This is Artemis 1. There are three crash test dummies inside this module. It will splash back on Earth and they'll do all kinds of telemetry on the crash test dummies to see what's going to happen when they send humans back to the moon. But humans will go back to the moon in 2024, they believe. And as a matter of fact, what they're planning on doing is setting up a moon colony. So all kinds of stuff that we used to think of as science fiction mm -hmm. all coming to fruition in our lifetimes. But it just underscores again how remarkable what happened in the late 60s, early 70s really was. When you consider that the computing power on this phone in my hand is more than they had on those lunar modules, yeah. it's just a remarkable feat of technology and will. Uh, John, thanks so much. Have a great show and a great day. That's our friend George Legogenis over at CP24, our sister television station. I always like how boyishly enthusiastic Dan Riskin is about science. And in particular, I watched and listened to a lot of his commentary yesterday about the Artemis mission. And I, I think it is, you know, something to be excited about, the idea of getting back to the moon, the idea of landing people on the moon, because this time they're going to, one of the people slated for the next moon mission is a Canadian. Uh, the whole idea as well is to land a woman on the moon. And then they're going to be setting up some sort of a moon colony and trying to figure out what life in diminished gravity is like and what life on another planet is like. And I guess, well, it's not a planet, I get it. It's a satellite. But the overall intention is eventually to send people to live on Mars. So the Grey Cup is back in Toronto. Some great uh, visuals as the Toronto Argonauts returned home and uh, walked the Grey Cup across the tarmac. It was carried off the plane by the head coach, Ryan Dinwiddie, and linebacker, Henok Muamba. And uh, Dinwiddle didn't spend an awful lot of time talking with the uh, media, but did say that this is just the start. His whole goal is to repeat this whole process next year. He says, let's go get number two. So, um, and of course, I think everybody knows by now that there's going to be a party on Thursday. Uh, Argos fans can celebrate with the team on Thursday at Maple Leaf Square outside of the Scotiabank Arena. And that championship rally is being held at 11 a.m. And it was fun also in the video of the Grey Cup being walked across the tarmac. Just tucked away in the corner of the segment I saw was a uh, very, very um, happy pinball Clemens who, uh, in his usual way, I suppose actually Tom Mahalik's probably listening right now. I'm pretty sure that Pinball gets his, uh, his clothes at Tom Mahalik's. And um, he was wearing a very, very fetching suit and a camel hair jacket. So 
uh, props to everybody associated with the Toronto Argonauts. And I hope that the uh, the team members all get a couple of days off from whatever it is they do for a living. And then on Thursday, I guess they'll have to ask for another day off. So uh, coming up in the next half hour, because we're just running up against the half hour headlines, I have to think there is a special circle in hell for anybody who practices the grandparent scam. But a 25-year-old woman has been busted in that. And let's spend a little bit more time with some of the stories we talked about in the first half hour, but in greater detail, including our homicide statistics and what happened at the Emergencies Act inquiry yesterday. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 5.36 on a Tuesday morning. It's zero degrees. And I guess it must be very still out there because I'm looking at the wind chill and it is zero as well. So um, we're definitely into cooler stuff. And I, I was just observing yesterday, actually, that I'm, I'm not quite yet resolved to the arrival of winter. And I guess it's mostly because we had such a nice fall. I mean, I bumped into a friend yesterday and we had been golfing together. When was it? I guess it was a week ago Thursday. And it was 18 degrees and sunny and the leaves were resplendent and everything was gorgeous. And it just, we were spoiled through most of fall with well above normal temperatures. I mean, some days five, six, seven, eight degrees warmer than it would otherwise have been. But all that's off the table. The snow is here. Doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And that's fine. Let's get ready for Christmas. Santa Claus arrived in town on the weekend. And, um, you know, I think people are getting into a, a jollier frame of mind. We've already reached that point where you know those people who haven't called you all year and they're going to say, we have to do lunch for Christmas. And all of a sudden it's like, really? Couldn't we have sat on a patio in July? Do we really have to figure out a way to sandwich this in between now and Christmas? So yesterday at the inquiry into the Declaration of the Emergencies Act, th things definitely uh, broke in the government's favor, should you wish that the government be vindicated in its use of the Emergencies Act. But when the head of CSIS says, yeah, okay, I did, I, I said that we should invoke the act, that's what I told the prime minister, then that takes a significant burden off of the prime minister and cabinet for having done so. If the top intelligence officer in the country is advising you to take some course of action in the interests of national security, then you're somewhat acquitted of having been rash in inv invoking the whole thing. Uh, CSIS Deputy Director Michel Tessier was also testifying yesterday. That testimony was much more about the potential for radicalization of people who were involved in the protests. The thinking was that once you get people whipped up into anti-vax mentality and conspiracy theories and the idea that the government is... Um, you know, injecting you with a tracking device against your will, and it's all for Bill Gates and George Soros. Once you get to that point, then you're probably ready to take on additional uh, fake notions and maybe, you know, go to war on the government. It would be more the individuals who exploit that type of a movement to recruit individuals, to bring them more towards the extreme view of anti-authority ideology, wanting to use violence, serious violence, to kill, to bring changes. So that informs, again, the mindset of what the cabinet was told on the day, the day before and the day that they ultimately invoked the Emergencies Act. 
And again, you know what? Let's see what else comes to the surface this week in testimony. I like how quickly this is all unfolding, though, because normally, honestly, Crown Commissions, this is not a Crown Commission, but Crown Commissions can go on forever. And by the time they weigh in on something, nobody even remembers what they were asked for an opinion on. You know, it's like you ask for an inquiry into the use of some economic instrument six years ago, and then the commission comes back and says, yeah, next time, maybe not so much. And here are 150 recommendations, and nobody cares. I was uh, mentioning going into the break on the half hour, the number of patients who have so far been sent from hospitals to long-term care facilities. Remember always, this is Bill 7, which is now a law, so I, don't, I never quite understand why we always continue to refer to laws as bills. But anyway, Bill 7, and it is the law that the provincial Ford administration brought to bear on people who are told, you know what, you're well enough to get out of the hospital. Yeah, but I'm not well enough to go home. I need to go to a long-term care home. Okay, well, we're going to find you a long-term care home. No, that's not the long-term care home I want to go to. Okay, well, either you can go to that or you can start paying $400 a day. So as you heard on our show yesterday, there is a group that has come together to fund a lawsuit insisting this is a charter violation. And that in particular, it goes to town on older people, people with disabilities, people who are infirm, um, that it actually creates a special category of person and then discriminates against them by not providing them with the health care that any other person might be provided with. And in particular, they're going after the $400 a day charge. So uh, Paul Calandra, who's the minister responsible, says to the best of his knowledge, nobody yet has actually faced that $400 a day um, fine. Uh, but also his statistics would suggest that 2,400 patients have already been moved to nursing homes. Now, that doesn't mean that every single one of them went to the nursing home they didn't want to go to, but it does mean that they uh, are sort of engaged in this um, uh, expedited effort at liberating hospital beds. And we've talked about this a great deal. I can appreciate how if you're just sitting in a room with a pair of reading glasses and a pencil and a piece of paper and trying to add up, here are the number of hospital beds that we've been able to free up, then this actually looks like a raging success. When you get into the individual stories of, you know, I remember my, my uncle would visit my aunt every single day in the senior's home that she was in. She was in a senior's home in Brampton, but it was like six blocks away from the house that they had lived in for 50 years. And so he would grab a book and go over and read to her uh, from a book that she had enjoyed when she was younger and somehow opened up this window for her where she would actually respond. And he would go and sit with her every single day. And that was something he could do because he could walk and he could go home and make himself lunch and then he could come back if he wanted to. That opportunity is not afforded to some of these people who have been transferred, in some cases, 70 or 140 kilometers away from where their families are. So it, it remains an eminently debatable public policy because it's either the height of cruelty or the height of, you know, ration and reason in terms of we need hospital beds, here's how we're going to do it. So what a moment yesterday. And I know some people don't want politics to ever feature in sporting events, but let's face it, um, you know, going right back to the Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936, there are occasions when politics 
are beyond uh, appropriate and uh, always uh, will be pointed. So yesterday, the Iranian players refused to sing their national anthem. And you see the camera going along, and they all have these very determined expressions on their faces, and their lips are not moving. And that is beyond uh, defiant and beyond brave, because you really have to wonder what's going to happen when they go back to Iran. Iran has been in a spasm of violence for the last couple of months, ever since the morality police, I mean, even the very existence of the morality police, never minding what they get up to, is, is astounding. The idea of, um, much like the Taliban used to do in Afghanistan, of you know, people being horse-whipped in the streets for failing to show enough uh, modesty. And in preparing for the show today, um, and, and you know, looking at this story in particular, I was not familiar with a horrible chapter that I ended up doing a bit of a read-up on. And uh, there was a wrestler, Navid Afkari, and he was arrested for being part of protests in 2018. And ultimately, he was sentenced to death, and then very quickly, he was hanged. He was 27 years old. And in these authoritarian regimes, there is just no limit to the depravity, to the violence they'll resort to, to the sense of uh, moral entitlement. And I guess that is aside from that, you know, incredible violence and uh, murderous intent, something that really bothers me about Qatar is this presumption. And I've heard several people speak to it. Well, you know, we're a conservative country, so you're just going to have to respect what we do. Okay, really? So if you go to a household where a man berates and abuses his wife, that's just the way they live. You'll have to put up with that. Subscribe today and always hear the latest episode of The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. So a few more details on this proposal to the QP workers and the lowest paid workers. The school sports staff are going to get an annual increase of about 4%. Uh, this is a tentative deal, but like I said, my, my own prediction would be not necessarily a fearless prediction, but I suspect the union is just weary. Everybody else is weary. We've been through all kinds of gyrations and a two-day strike. And so I would imagine they'll probably just so say, okay, go ahead and do it. Because if they don't, then wow, uh, where are we going to be? I mean, um, when you repudiate your own union leader, and it will be possible to actually reject her even if they accept the deal. Some people suspect that she's going to be um, tossed aside once all of this is done. But yeah, if they were to come back and say, no, no, we're going to try this all over again, then I think the government would probably impose another deal and then just say, screw it, we're done. And you want to sue us? Go ahead, knock yourselves out. Um, but uh, I have to think, uh, I don't have a date right sitting in front of me, probably some people listening right now. I know there's 55,000 members of that particular unit, so probably a few of them are listening right now. Um, you can drop me a text at any time and uh, tell me when we expect to actually have uh, ratification uh, for that. Um, but yesterday, the education minister, you know what, I, I, I have to say, I'm not always the biggest fan. I'm, I'm not really a fan of anybody uh, when it comes to politics. Um, I certainly have people who I think do better than others. 
but I would say that one of the things that the education minister, Stephen Lecce, has done well since this deal was reached on Sunday is not to be seen to be high-fiving and taking victory laps because we got to get this thing sealed. And frankly, I think it's, you know, everybody, I hate the expression. Who are we talking with? I think it was Thomas Mulcair on Mulcair Monday. And I said, I cannot stand because it's so overused, the expression, put some water in your wine. But it makes sense for both sides in this deal. The government definitely sweetened the offer and the union eventually relented on some pretty hidebound aspects of what it was they were demanding. It is 5.50, and everybody remembers what a sensation it was when we first started with Beyond Meat, which was vegetable product engineered in such a way to look and taste like meat, and then even have to what they call in the industry mouthfeel. But it would seem that it's not really catching on, that maybe we've topped out in terms of the market of the number of people who would like to eat Beyond Meat instead of the real deal. We're joined by NBC News national radio correspondent Aaron Real. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning. Yes, so just a few years ago, it seems like there was no stopping the, the growth of plant-based meat, but it, it seems faux burgers, sausages, while they were landing in homes and on menu boards at chains like Subway, Carl's, Starbucks, the company went public in 2019, shares skyrocketed, but it's lost some of its sizzle. So Beyond Meat's stock has slumped nearly 83% this past year. Sales, which the company had expected to rise as much as 33%, they're now likely to show only very minor growth. McDonald's actually concluded a pilot program of the McPlant Burger. It was made with a Beyond Meat patty. It ended this year, and they have no plans to put it on the menu permanently. And the company said that they're going to lay off 200 people and four of their top executives have left in recent months. So this really begs the question if Beyond Meat struggles are specific to that company or a harbinger of, of just much deeper issues in the plant-based meat industry. And while the slowdown in sales, it could be a product of food inflation. Uh, consumers are trading pricier plant-based meats for less expensive ones. But others really wonder if the company has simply reached the maximum numbers of consumers willing to try or repeatedly purchase faux meat, burger, sausages. And it, it seems like about 50% Deloitte did a survey and they, they asked, um, you know, whether people wanted this and, and they questioned whether 53% who were not buying plant-based meats would ever be turned into customers. And that's the big question. Aaron, thank you very much. Appreciate this. Have a great day. Aaron Rayel, NBC News national radio correspondent. I don't think that's all that surprising. I mean, it was treated as sort of a... Um, an exotic experiment for a while. I've had my share of it because I tend to be uh, what is called a flexitarian, which is if I can eat vegetarian, I will, but I don't treat it as if, you know, I have to eat halal or something like that. But I, I you know, on the flip side of that, I'll never quite understand why some people think that they have to defy vegetarianism, that vegetarianism is somehow an assault on the world. And in particular, I've actually come across people who if you were to serve them a vegetarian burger and they've had a great meal and then you tell them that they ate vegetarian, they'd be like, how dare you? What have you done to me? It's, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy eating it? What is your objection to this? But I get it. Um, some people think that vegetarianism is some sort of um, an assault on their political and moral sensibilities, so they get all mad about it. That's The Breakfast Wrap. My name is John Moore. Thanks for listening. I hope we'll talk again soon.
You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.